0: on to my mommy's
1: podcast. This episode is sponsored by Crunchy Betty products. Here's a secret. Well, I have a post about making my own deodorant. I haven't actually done that in a couple of years because I found Crunchy Betty Kokomo cream deodorant and I realized it works just as well It doesn't cause irritation, and it's made by a small family business that I love to support. This deodorant smells like the tropics, and one small jar lasts for months, so it reduces packaging. I love that it uses this minimal, recyclable packaging, and because it lasts so long, there's virtually no waste. For me, this deodorant completely stops any odor, it keeps me fresh all day, even on heavy workout days. So many natural deodorants cause irritation and this one doesn't. If you love tropical smells and if you've been looking for a natural de- deodorant, you have got to check it out. There's two ways to order. You can check it out on Etsy by going to Etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash crunchy Betty or on Amazon by going to crunchybetty.com forward slash wellness mama. So again, that's C-R-U-N-C-H-Y-B-E-T-T-Y.com forward slash wellness mama. This episode is sponsored by Just Thrive Probiotics. I found this company when searching for the most research-backed and effective probiotic available, and I was blown away at the difference I found in their products. They offer two cornerstone products that are both clinically studied and highly effective. The first is their probiotic, which has been studied to help with leaky gut and to survive up to 1,000 times as much as other probiotics, or as the beneficial organisms in something like Greek yogurt, for instance. The difference is, their spore-based strains work completely differently than other types of probiotics. Their probiotic is vegan, dairy-free, histamine-free, non-GMO, and is made without soy, dairy, sugar, salt, corn, tree nuts, or gluten. So it's safe for practically everyone. I even sprinkle it in my kids' food or bake it into products because it can survive at really high temperatures. Their probiotic contains a patented strain called Bacillus Indicus HU36, which produces antioxidants in the digestive system where they can be easily absorbed by the body. Their other product is a K2-7, and this is a nutrient you may have heard of. It's known as Activator X, a super nutrient that Weston A. Price, a dentist known primarily for his theories on the relationship between nutrition, good health, bone development, and oral health, found. He found that this is prevalent in foods in the healthiest communities in the world. The K2 from Just Thrive is the only pharmaceutical grade all natural supplement with published safety studies. Like the probiotic, it is also gluten, dairy, soy, nut, and GMO free. And best are both taken with food. So I keep both on my kitchen table. Here's a tip too. My dad has trouble remembering to take supplements. So he actually taped these to his pepper shaker because he uses that at practically every meal. And now they're on his daily supplement list as well. You can check out all their products and learn more by going to thriveprobioticcom probiotic.com forward slash wellness mama and using the code wellness mama 15 to save 15%. So again, that's thrive probiotic T H R I V E P R O B I O T I C dot forward slash wellness mama and the code wellness mama 15 to save 15%. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and today's guest is a powerhouse and a wealth of information. And she's also one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram. Dr. Amy Shaw, MD, is a double board certified medical doctor who trained at Grinnell, Harvard, and Columbia. She runs her own thriving medical practice in Arizona. She's worked as a medical consultant with Bobby Brown, the makeup guru, to develop a line of innovative health foods and supplements. And she's also a key medical advisor for a company that I love, Genexa, which is the first natural pharmaceutical company and Viome, as well as many other leading wellness companies. We're going to deep dive into childhood allergies, gut health, hormones, and so much more. I love talking to her. Dr. Amy, welcome and thanks for being here.
0: Thanks so much, Katie. I love talking to you too.
1: Oh my gosh, likewise. And I know that you have a background and a lot of experience in immunology and childhood allergies. So I'd love to start there and kind of do a deep dive into why are allergies in children becoming so prevalent? They seem like they're definitely on the rise. Any idea what the cause is?
0: Yeah, Katie. Katie. One in five children in industrialized countries suffer from allergic disease or autoimmune disease, and this is rising. Every 10 years, it's doubling in incidence, especially as countries are becoming more developed, which is so strange, right? Because you think as we become cleaner and more developed and more advanced that we should have less diseases, not more, but we think there's a change in our lifestyle um, that's actually stimulating the rise of autoimmune allergy asthma, and all kinds of other um, inflammatory diseases. So it was first found um, at the turn of the century in London. There was a scientist uh, by the name of Strachan who said, hey, that's interesting. All these children who are moving into London because of industrial revolution, you know, around the 1900s, they were starting to get all these diseases, asthma, allergies, autoimmune diseases. However, the children who stayed on the farms did not have such a uh, high incidence and that was his observation and then he did a study on 17,000 British children and he found that to be true that the children that lived on farms had larger families had more exposure, presumably to animals dirt they were having less allergies, asthma, and autoimmune disease. And so that's when this hygiene hypothesis was born. And that is still the leading, you know, thought process on why we have such a huge rise in autoimmune, inflammatory, and allergic diseases in our modern world.
1: That makes sense. And it's sad to see. Do you think... Um like, What are some of the surprising things in our environment that you think might really be contributing to this? Because I've written about it some, and I have my own theories, but you obviously have the research and clinical side, so I'd love your take.
0: There have been so many studies looking at you know, early antibiotic use in children. Um, of course, you can blame uh, antimicrobials as a huge uh, cause for this. What happens is, When our immune system is not stimulated enough as a child, especially from the ages from zero to five, we end up making autoimmune to our own body. So we think that we need that stimulation um, from being exposed to bacteria. And bacteria can come in the form of animal exposure, in the form of little bits of dirt from the food that we eat. It can be from uh, bacteria from other family members. So we found that larger family sizes, uh, people who are exposed to more people, people who share food, people who um, come from families that have larger uh, you know households and also animals they tend to have better immune systems than children who are in a very nuclear setting with very clean environment. Um, so I can definitely say that some of these things that we think we 're so advanced about um, are actually hurting our immune system. Um, I would say. For for example, when my children were little, um, I was living in New York City, and I was pretty cavalier about, you know, taking them to the park and letting them crawl around um, and get exposure, obviously not on the city streets, but in the park where, um, you know, we felt comfortable letting them loose, being exposed to animals, having sharing food with them. That was all a big part of what we think can um, bolster a healthy immune system.
1: Which Yeah, that makes total sense when you think about it. And I've read even of some cultures where in the early years, the mom like pre-chews the food and gives it to the kid, which Americans tend to like cringe at the thought, but it makes sense. There's a bacterial transfer. There's all these enzymes in the mouth plus bacteria that then get passed on to the baby. And I feel like there was a shift at some point, um, or at least in cities and more modernized world where bacteria became a bad thing and we've started to shift that a little bit in our understanding of probiotics and how there are beneficial bacteria but I still feel like sometimes the perception is that bacteria are bad when largely we are we have so much bacteria in our own bodies that they're a vital part of life for us. Um, I know a couple of years ago I saw a lot of news come out About how triclosan, an ingredient in a lot of antibacterial soaps, for instance, had been banned. And it brought up all these questions about do we need antibacterial soaps and kind of questioning that, you know, hygiene hypothesis. So how do you handle that both as a mom and a doctor? Because obviously we want to be clean and have good hygiene, but the bacteria side is so important too.
0: Exactly. The reason I got interested in immunology is because of this conundrum that we're in at this point in our, in, in the stage of development. Of course, in our ICUs and our hospitals, especially as a healthcare professional, I'm keenly aware that you need to, um, sanitize and you can, you have to make sure that you're not spreading bacteria from one sick individual to another. So there's two things going on here. One is, you know, increased sanitation and careful measures in the hospital setting where people are sick. And then there's this other um, conundrum where, hey, but what about when you're not sick, when you're at home and living in your own home? Do you really need all these antibacterial um, soaps and cleaners? And, the, and my answer is no. If you are not sick or your family members are not sick, then that's an opportunity for you to foster um, your microbiome and really... Take in So if you have, have a garden in your backyard like we do, we have a small garden, and if you use uh, the vegetables from there, you are getting a little bit of bacteria from the garden, especially if you're not washing with an antibacterial soap. Um, and so little measures like that when you are healthy and living in a place where you have the opportunity to have a little more bacteria in your life, I I think you should welcome it. And the same thing with animals or sharing food with your healthy family members. But of course, there is a conundrum because when you're in the healthcare setting and when you're dealing with very ill patients, you have to be careful about not transferring bacteria from person to person.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So definitely use use some caution in how you do that, but it makes sense that we all need that exposure and I feel like those are some easy tips. It was one of the points I used when I was trying to convince my husband that we should get a dog is I'm like it's great for the kids immune systems so I there are studies that you know children who have pets um, and we used to also live near an Amish community and of course there's been a lot of things written about how they tend to have lower rates of allergies and also things like autism and ADD and I think there's a lot of things that could be in combination that could contribute to that. But having been out there, I also think they do so much better about getting dirty than we do. Like those babies are with their moms in the field playing when yes. they're in the dirt and eating the dirt and playing with animals and eating strawberries right off the plant and just interacting with that bacterial environment.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a perfect point. I think the Amish communities, um, as well as many uh, communities in the developing world, are teaching us some lessons in the fact that we don't have it all figured out. And I think we all know, you know, and I know that There's a lot of things in medicine that we still have not figured out, and immunology and the development of the immune system is an area that's super interesting uh, because of the new discoveries of the microbiome, because we are realizing, hey, maybe this is an area that we can really develop and change and influence in people that can make a sizable difference in their long-term health. Um, So it's an extremely exciting area for me, Um, although we don't really have all the data on exactly what we should be doing. Uh, All of the things that we've been talking about are kind of like presumptuous um, based on the research and not necessarily things that are proven.
1: That makes sense. And so I know I have a lot of personal friends who have children with food allergies and obviously it can be very scary, especially if those are life-threatening food allergy. And likely many of our listeners today have a child with food allergies or know a child with food allergies. So other than the food itself, are there other things that those parents need to be concerned with to help their children?
0: So, children with food allergies, it's a very, very changing field right now because we're finding out we completely switched our recommendations. In the past, even when I was first in training, there was this recommendation that you shouldn't have your newborn children, um, you know, up to the age of one or two, having exposure to certain allergens such as nuts and peanuts and tree nuts. And then, we realize, okay, there's countries like Israel where the first teething food at three or four months, called a bomba snack, has peanut flour in it. And that country had a super low rate of food allergies, especially peanut allergy. So now, and then the studies corroborated this. So now, the whole recommendation is completely flipped, and we are saying, "Hey, the more you can expose your children to new foods, uh, whether you 're breastfeeding or feeding them you know their first foods or chewing crackers, all, all that stuff, you should be um, incorporating all kinds of foods, uh, which makes sense, all kinds of foods, different variations as soon as they have their first kind of um, rice cereal, then you should start to incorporate." any kind of um, allergy, allergenic foods into their diet. Um, so I think that besides exposing them to all kinds of foods, I also think that it's really important to expose them to all kinds of bacteria, like healthy bacteria, like we mentioned, You know, animal exposure, exposure to healthy other family members, um, friends, people who can give them different sources of bacteria, having them play outside like we mentioned in kind of a field or a farm or a, just your backyard where you're not spraying all kinds of chemicals on your grass, um, and really having them be exposed to natural forms of bacteria, not necessarily infecting them with bacterial you know, infections per se, but really having them um, get dirty, down and dirty.
1: Yeah, and I know also as a side note, with the rise in other childhood diseases and obesity, it's great, another great excuse to get kids outside, get them moving, get them sunshine and just interacting with the environment. And that brings up another question that I would love to get your take on, which is um, I feel like a lot of parents view kids getting the occasional sniffles or cold when they're little as a bad thing, or like they're doing something wrong as a parent. They need to clean, you know, sterilize more, or um, they're just so quick to treat those little illnesses. And I've always taken the opposite approach, thinking like the immune system has to develop, so they're going to get sick a certain number of times anyway. Um, it's good if it's mild, but their body needs to learn how to interact with that. And I know as an adult having an autoimmune disease, I've studied that in depth because um, I think that was maybe one thing that contributed to mine. But I'm curious, like as a doctor and a mom, how do you look at it when kids get sick, especially in those early years when they're still developing their immune system?
0: Um, You're absolutely right. I think that they need that uh, immune stimulation I mean we know that they need that immune stimulation and the like I said the leading um, thought processes on why autoimmune diseases are on the rise as you mentioned for yourself is that maybe we did not get enough immune stimulation as children and it's not to say that we purposely infect our children but if they do get sick um, in a natural way then you um, not necessarily foster that but don't get scared and don't get worried Don't over sanitize. It's really a part of childhood um, immune system development. In fact, um, this is pretty extreme, but there's, uh, I don't know if you've heard about this guy who was infecting himself with hookworm um, because parasitic diseases especially seem to really protect against allergic and autoimmune diseases later in life. And, um, you know, obviously we don't want to be doing that until we have really robust studies, but there is some idea that, you know, parasitic um, stimulation, uh, especially as in children, even as, as adults, can really decrease the incidence of autoimmune and allergic diseases.
1: I'm so glad to hear you say that because um, I have some extended family members who have been in the kind of health world for decades, and they're older now, but they have been for years and years on this kick of we need to do all these hardcore cleanses and kill any potential parasites in our body. And I always just was hesitant and not, never really got on that bandwagon because I was like, people have lived much more in, in connection with the environment and animals than we do now. And people like kids, Amish kids walk around barefoot, all the time in manure and you know kids have been exposed to many more parasites than we currently are and people weren't dying in droves from that so what if they're like bacteria what if there's some kind of reason or like purpose that these things can exist at times and maybe we should be a little more cautious about just you know killing all of them
0: exactly and now you know you know very well and i do too with the robust microbiome research and all these new discoveries that we're finding out um, I think more is better. Of course, we have to couch that with, you know, how much more is better and how, that's why I say really do it naturally, like, you know, go out and play and get sun exposure and get nature exposure. It has so many other benefits, like you mentioned, beyond um, improving your microbiome. You know, we, we have a circadian clock in every one of our cells, and having that morning sunlight and that evening darkness, re, uh, you know, in nature can really, really help. Our health in so many other ways than just the microbiome. But um, so I think doing it naturally and having it come naturally is probably the best bet at this point.
1: Yeah, for sure. I often think of that small study that came out a few years ago that found that basically camping outside away from all artificial light and phones and whatever for seven days was enough to totally reset the circadian rhythm of the body. And I haven't gotten brave enough to take six kids camping for seven days, but it's really astounding just what light and nature can do to us if we let it.
0: I, um, a few years ago, uh, my husband and I went to Costa Rica and we stayed at this eco resort um, on the river where there was no electricity. Um, the only electricity they had is in the main kitchen cabin where they had a, like a, a source of um, uh, independent electricity. Uh, but you I have to say that seven days being out in nature, eating only the food from that uh, campsite, eating, you know, being outdoors, this, my sleep and my energy levels were never better. I highly recommend everybody do that at least once in the next couple of years to see how good you can feel.
1: Yeah, definitely. Even just shorting, shorter camping trips, it's you do sleep so well when you're just out in nature. And on the note of kids getting sick, I'd also um, like to go deep a little bit on fevers because I feel like so many moms, and I get it, it's so scary when your kid gets a fever, especially high fever. And so many moms are quick to jump in with any fever, you know, 99.5, start giving Tylenol or start giving Motrin. Um, And I've also always taken a controversial approach on that where I don't fight fevers unless there's an extreme reason to fight fevers. But I'd love to actually get the doctor's side on this because um, that's just always what has been my intuition as a mom and what's worked for me. But I'd love to hear from you on that.
0: I mean, as you are a mom of six kids, so you know that um, low-grade fevers are quite common and quite a a big part of um, a upper respiratory infection, um, cold-like symptoms. And I completely agree with you. In fact, I do the same thing with my children. I do not give them any kind of ibuprofen, Tylenol, Motrin products unless there is another reason to do that, or if the fever is really super high, 104 and above. Um, But for most fevers, that is a natural inflammatory response by your body to mobilize your immune uh, system to come and help fight this infection. It's actually a natural part of um, our fight, res- fighting response. And by taking these medications, not only are you adding these, uh, you know, toxin-laden uh, medications into your body, but you're also maybe blunting that immune response.
1: Yeah, that's what's always felt right to me, and I am much more the I'll like that's one of the only times I'll let my kids watch movies, and that's how I get them through you know like a fever if they're uncomfortable is um I'll like put a movie they like give them lots of liquids, and, you know, and not too much solid food, just rehydrate them, keep them warm, let the fever do its job. And typically, I think so many times kids' bodies are amazingly resilient, adults too, but kids are just phenomenal. And they can bounce back so quickly if you just let their body run its course. And in fact, as an adult, um, I've kind of tried to learn from that. So I think kids get better fevers. I'm a little jealous actually how much better fevers they can get and how they get better quicker. So if I start feeling an illness coming on, I will get in a sauna and purposely like try to raise my body temperature and give myself a little bit of a fever. And it seems like it really does stop illnesses from coming on. Is there any actual science behind that? Or is it just in my head?
0: Yeah, no. It, it, but The whole response of you know raising your body temperature is to immobilize this immune response in your body um, to kind of go uh, you know mobilize all the lymph nodes. And so, as you know, being in a sauna is a really great way of draining out, cleaning out those lymph nodes. And so, I think that there's no doubt, and also a great way of getting rid of toxins through your sweat. So, no doubt for me, that um, sweating it out is a really great way to deal with, um, especially a virus or, um, you know, an upper respiratory infection. And I think that, you know, when I was studying immunology, I was so shocked that sleep and gut rest is still still studied. I mean, that is the top two things that you could be doing for your body, sleep and gut rest um, for, just like you're saying to your, for your kids, really Maximizing those things and not relying on all these external medications to help fight this virus or illness is is the way to go. I think that all these things that we talk about, you know, um, to help with colds and viruses, and are all great, but nothing really trumps um, sleep and gut rest. And I really, I do love um, that idea of saunas. I do um, hot yoga myself, and I feel like the benefits of sweating out the toxins um, and immobilizing, mobilizing the lymphatic flow and, you know, t- sweating out those toxins is is really unparalleled.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree based on my own experience for sure. And I want to move on to a couple other topics. But before we do, um, I love it if you have any tips for natural remedies for mom. We've shared a lot as far as I think sleep and gut health is probably... Like Nothing can trump that for sure, but moms who have kids with minor childhood issues, um, I know that you also are the medical advisor for a company I love, Genexa, and they make a lot of remedies, so we can maybe touch on a couple of those, but um, any remedies you recommend for moms, even if it's not, to bring the fever down, but just to help the child recover or be more comfortable?
0: Yeah, um, I love Genexa, and I know you do too. Because I think we didn't realize—we don't realize—that when we treat all these things, um, for example, when children get hurt, and you know, you said, "Oh, icy hot," that should be not a big deal. You're rubbing it on the skin, but I did not know that these kind of Commercial medications have all kinds of formaldehyde uh, releasing chemicals, DMDM hydantoin. It has colors and fragrances and all these things. And when we put things on the skin, it's literally absorbed right into the bloodstream. And with children, you really worry about that because they they're getting a larger dose than we are. So, for example. There is a nasal saline that Genexa makes that doesn't have parabens, um, and if you think about it, we have become so careful about not having hormone disruptors in our adult life by using you know, natural cosmetics or shampoo and blah, 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 but then when our children are sick and we're using these nasal saline products, a lot of them, or most of them, contain parabens and all these other kind of binders that are hormone disrupting, so I am so excited that there are companies like Junaxa that are changing the game, that are really saying, okay, why don't we create some easy remedies? For example, nasal saline, that's something that I highly recommend for babies especially. And infants who cannot be taking lots of other medications to kind of dehumidify their nose and kind of help them drain out all the mucus when they can't sleep well and breathe well from their nose. And can you imagine giving these babies a nasal saline that is laden with parabens and other toxins the way we've been doing it for many years now?
1: Especially I mean, right next to their brain. That, yeah, it blows my mind. I didn't know that either. Like, I've been using natural everything for years. And when I started researching, like, what's in even just, like, natural remedies and medicines, I was shocked.
0: And it's crazy that only 10% of most medications are the actual active ingredient. I also, once I started working with Genexa, I was like, I had no idea that all these things, like Tums, for example, just over-the-counter, you know, things that we give to pregnant women, okay, all the time um, for, you know, minor heartburn issues – These are only 10% the active ingredient calcium carbonate. The rest 90% is fillers and stabilizers and colors and flavors and sweeteners and all kinds of toxins that we're giving to people who are carrying a developing fetus, it's really scary. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of change coming on and lots of companies that are doing amazing things. So uh, Genexa actually has an alternative that's called, I think, Heartburn Fix, and that does not have any colors and uh, flavors and sugar, artificial, anything. And so what you are getting is a minor heartburn relief if, um, you know, you're suffering from that, which unfortunately, no matter how healthy and clean I eat, sometimes I do have minor heartburn issues and I do use that.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I also love, before we move on, just a quick tip. They have these great little like homeopathic tablets as well. And I feel yeah. like those are enough to satisfy my kids, especially if they're like, I'm having trouble sleeping. I'm like, oh, here's a sleeping one. And then it's, I think the combination of the homeopathic plus, they just, they just think they're getting something that's going to put them to sleep, so they go to sleep is amazing. So as a mom tip, those are great as well. I know that you also have, well, you have expertise in a lot of areas, you're double board certified, but you also have a lot of expertise in gut health. So I'd love if you could walk us through just what, what you see as a doctor, some of the biggest challenges in today's world for people with, like in the gut health department and what we can do about it.
0: Exactly. Gut health is probably the number one thing that I hear about day in, day out. For example, people who have newfound food allergies or sensitivities, people who have bloating on a regular basis, people who feel fatigue, people who feel kind of fogginess in their concentration, brain fog, or whatever you might want to call it, those are often, those three things are often because of your gut health. And you think that, you know, having, uh, you know, not having clear concentration has nothing to do with with your gut. Also, your mood has so much to do with your gut. Um, So by improving your gut, you can improve your energy, you can improve the way, obviously, how bloated you are, you can improve your concentration, and you can improve your mood. As you know, so much of, um, you know, 80% of your serotonin is made in the gut and you know, y- your immune system is largely located um, in your GI tract. What's happening is every time you eat any food, there is a large conversation happening between the bacteria that are present in your gut and they're talking to your um, cells in your body. So there's this conversation going on between the bacteria in your gut and the cells of your own body. And they're all deciding, hey, is this foreign? Is this good? Should we take out some of the B vitamins from this, the D vitamins? And each and every thing you eat, there is a decision being made whether to absorb uh, this kind of uh, food or whether to keep it in the gut as waste, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that makes sense then why you want a robust amount of bacteria in your gut that's able to do this communication with your own cells, And it makes sense that taking antibiotics will completely mess up this communication method and this whole tight system of checks and balances and conversations um, that's going on with your immune system will be off when you're eating um, irritants, Anti, um, when you're taking antibiotics, when you're using ibuprofen, when you're using antacids and a host of other preservatives and toxins can really throw off this balance. And if you're imbalanced, then you have food sensitivities and allergies that you never had before. You have bloating, you have mood issues, you have problems with concentration, fatigue, and lots of other diseases
1: yeah for sure I think we're learning just so much more and more and i I'm a nerd who browses PubMed, but there's so many studies that come out constantly about gut health and the different bacteria, and maybe you will never completely understand every intricacy of that, but it's just fascinating to know like what an incredible job our gut does and I think one thing that's related to that you're also an expert in is hormone balance and hormones because you know some so much of that related to the food we eat or to the factors in the gut and it's something that so many women struggle with so do you have any tips for women who are struggling to balance hormones maybe especially postpartum or just with like menstrual issues in general
0: absolutely i think that hormone imbalance um is a huge problem in our current society because i think that people don't realize so that when you're stressed out all the time and you're making cortisol making adrenaline, which is good right you want that fight or flight response at certain times in your life however you don't want a chronic stress response when you're trying to make cortisol all the time adrenaline all the time you're actually stealing from the uh, you know creation of other hormones and you're creating a hormone imbalance so not only Are you um, you having a fight or flight response and chronic stress creating all kinds of other um, hormonal problems, you're actually stealing from your other hormones, so you'll get a progesterone, low progesterone and an estrogen progesterone imbalance just from this chronic stress response. So I think it's really important for postpartum women, for moms, for women that are going through perimenopause to really take control of that stress. Um, and I think that that stress can come in many ways. Not, It's just not mental stress, it's also stress on our GI tracts and stress on our uh, bodies as exercise and you know poor sleep. And so, really cleaning up the sleep, the exercise, uh, the mental stress, and the food is key to hormonal imbalance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and the key to so much else as well. There's a few more topics I want to touch on with you, but I also realized I forgot to ask you one of the most important questions related to kids getting sick that I think you have a great perspective on, which is antibiotic use, because I also see so many moms who that's the first line of defense. If the kid has an ear infection, has anything, they want antibiotics. And I 100% understand wanting to help your child when they're uncomfortable or in pain, especially. But from the doctor side and the immunology side, how do moms evaluate when to give antibiotics and when to hold off?
0: Great question, Katie. I think that I'll give you a story. I was... At um, I usually don't visit any kind of healthcare um, entities because I'm a physician myself, but when I was traveling to India um, this December, we were going to India and Singapore, and so we thought it was important to get some uh, special endemic vaccines like typhoid, fever, um, et cetera, Hepa A, and we were waiting there, and there was a, um, a mom who was extremely upset with a, the provider there and saying, you know, I need antibiotics for my son, You did not do anything for him. All you told him is to get rest and drink water, and that's not right. And he's been dealing with this for over two weeks now. And it's just, you know, it was so enlightening for me because I know, you know, when often when we're speaking to each other and speaking to the choir, it's like, yeah, we all know that we want to save antibiotics for the very last um, resort, but there's so much. As a mom, you know, you want to do so much for your child. And I can understand the frustration in her voice. She was like, you're telling me that you cannot do anything for him at this moment in time. And, you know, but I think that what he was trying to make her understand, and I helped him, is that there is no cure for the common cold or for most uh, uh, viruses. In fact, most illnesses, 85% of all childhood illnesses are viral. And so when you're talking about ear infections, you're talking about sinus, you're talking about cold, um, even GI bugs, these are all viral illnesses, which antibiotics do not treat. And so I think that the big thing to take home here is 85% and probably 95% of the time, you don't need to be taking antibiotics for the child's illness. And I think that if you take that into consideration, you know, I would wait at least a week before approaching the physician. If it is typical symptoms of a cold or a virus, um, you know, with a low-grade fever, muscle aches and fatigue uh, and upper respiratory symptoms. Of course, if you're not sure, you can ask your doctor, but I think that there has to be more knowledge out there that I know it's frustrating that there's no absolute you know, one-shot solution um, to these childhood illnesses. But I think, you know, Katie, it's just a part of growing up. You have to be okay with them being sick sometimes.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and back to your point about, you know, sleep and gut rest, that sometimes that is the most effective way, and especially if we're not giving kids sugar or You know, sugary drinks or processed foods, and just letting their body rest. I think that's another common misconception with kids: is that they need to eat absolutely like three to six times a day. And it's, you know, if they don't, that like you worry about it. And I've taken the opposite approach with that, both with my kids and myself. If I want them to actually really listen to their body and not eat if they're not hungry, but especially when they're sick, most kids aren't that hungry when they're sick. So we just do a lot of herbal teas and gentle things and let them rest. And it seems to work and that I've never had a kid actually need antibiotics and I have six of them. So I think there's so much wisdom to that approach. And I'm curious too, I know that from your Instagram that you intermittent fast. And so the gut rest seems like it kind of lines up with that because anytime we're not having to expand, expend all this energy for digestion, our body can use it somewhere else, but talk to us a little bit about the benefits of intermittent fasting or regular fasting and how that can benefit the body.
0: Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of intermittent fasting. There's a few reasons. Every cell in our body has a circadian clock. So we've probably, you've probably heard about circadian rhythms and you know, helping with sleep and energy and all that stuff. But there's also a timing in each one of our cells. Our, our metabolism is just more active during the sunlight hours, for example. And so the type of intermittent fasting that I propose and that I do myself is to, um, it's kind of in the literature called time-restricted eating or time-restricted feeding when it's animal studies, which is basically eating uh, within the hours of, say, 7 a.m. and 6 p.m p.m. and then limiting the amount of hours. So doing like, say, 11 hours of eating and then 13 hours of fasting. And then there'd be certain days of the week. For me, it's about two days a week where I extend that a little bit more to maybe 16 or 18 hours of fasting. And the reason I do time-restricted eating is because um, of the circadian uh, biology. So what happens is, you know, our body cannot be doing many, many metabolic processes all at the same time, which makes sense. So there are certain times of the day and night where our digestion processes, our metabolic processes are turned down. And those seem to be for almost everyone preserved among over 90% of people, 95% of people at the same time is kind of in the nighttime hours. And then during the daytime hours, our body's optimized to be digesting to, um, and metabolically active. And so that's a great time to eat. So not only is it giving our body um, a metabolic boost, but I do it because our body gets a time to rest between meals. So what I do typically is stop eating at around 6pm and then don't eat again until 7am. And that's um, something that I do most maybe five days a week. And then two days a week, I actually extend that to about 16 hours to get the additional autophagy benefits. Autophagy is a clean out of the cell. And that happens with a little bit longer fasts.
1: Yeah, and I get so many questions about specifically um, fasting for women. I think that's been a somewhat controversial topic uh, in the last couple of years because intermittent fasting gained popularity. And then there were these kind of counter articles saying it's not good for women at all. And I haven't actually found any scientific literature on why, especially intermittent fasting isn't good for women because when I hear people say like, oh, I can never fast, I get low blood sugar. I'm like, but you fast every night when you're asleep. Um, You know, you kind of do it anyway. You're just talking about extending your, essentially your sleep window with intermittent fasting. But do you think there are any concerns specific to women when it comes to fasting?
0: Absolutely, just it's a fact that women are wired to be more sensitive to fasting than men are. And it, um, you know, some people ask me, "Well, I'm a woman and I have no problems with um, you know extended fasting." And uh, I think Katie, you're maybe one of them. But uh, there's many, many women who are very sensitive to um, the hunger signals, and our body, when it senses starvation, often turns up those hunger signals. And I think most women um, who've been part of the dieting culture know that feeling of under eating one day and then waking up the next day just starving. Your hunger signals on, are on overdrive. And so what ends up happening is that if you ignore that, then um, the body keeps sensing starvation. It often turns off the signals for fertility. So people will, and presumably in animal studies, this has been shown, and I've seen patients uh, you know, who have lost their period or um, uh, get irregular periods when they're extensively fasting or doing some other kind of starvation diet. So I always recommend for women, especially if they have that history, um, to one, make sure that they're not dealing with anorexia, bulimia, that kind of issue. And then start with really short fasts, like 12 hours, like 13 hours. I mean, the studies on fasting, even just for intermittent fasting, just for 13 hours a night. So that would be like what I was talking about from 6 p.m. to 7 a.m., are robust. There is a really great breast cancer study that show that by fasting 13 hours nightly, women who had breast cancer had a 36% reduction in the recurrence of breast cancer if they fasted nightly for 13 hours versus the other group who did not fast. So you can see that um, you don't have to have these huge extensive long fasts to see amazing results. Um, so any women, woman or man even who's jumping into this for the first time, I say, start slow. Start Start with like 12 hours, which is like you said, just extending a little bit of your nightly fast and get comfortable with that over two or three weeks before you start to extend it a little bit more. And then if you experience any hormonal fluctuations, just stop and resume your normal pattern of eating.
1: Yeah, exactly. It truly could be for many people as simple as just don't eat after dinner, which is when you know they say it's the least good for our metabolism anyway to be eating, especially anything processed, but even to be eating late at night because then your body's still digesting when you sleep. And I know I've seen the data that if you don't eat too close before bed in that like three to four hour window before bed, then you are able to get more restful sleep. And I certainly noticed that with my own sleep tracking. If I don't eat for several hours, let my body digest before I sleep. I'm able to get more REM and more deep sleep than when I don't this episode is sponsored by crunchy betty products here's a secret while i have a post about making my own deodorant i haven't actually done that in a couple of years because i found crunchy betty Kokomo Cream deodorant, and I realized it works just as well. It doesn't cause irritation, and it's made by a small family business that I love to support. This deodorant smells like the tropics, and one small jar lasts for months, so it reduces packaging. I love that it uses this minimal, recyclable packaging, and because it lasts so long, there's virtually no waste. For me, this deodorant completely stops any odor, It keeps me fresh all day, even on heavy workout days. So many natural deodorants cause irritation and this one doesn't. If you love tropical smells and if you've been looking for a natural de- deodorant, you have got to check it out. There's two ways to order. You can check it out on Etsy by going to Etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash crunchy Betty or on Amazon by going to crunchybetty.com forward slash wellness mama. So again, that's C-R-U-N-C-H-Y-B-E-T-T-Y.com forward slash wellness mama. This episode is sponsored by Just Thrive Probiotics. I found this company when searching for the most research-backed and effective probiotic available, and I was blown away at the difference I found in their products. They offer two cornerstone products that are both clinically studied and highly effective. The first is their probiotic, which has been studied to help with leaky gut and to survive up to 1,000 times as much as other probiotics, or as the beneficial organisms in something like Greek yogurt, for instance. The difference is their spore-based strains work completely differently than other types of probiotics. Their probiotic is vegan, dairy-free, histamine-free, non-GMO, and is made without soy, dairy, sugar, salt, corn, tree nuts, or gluten, so it's safe for practically everyone. I even sprinkle it in my kids' food or bake it into products because it can survive at really high temperatures. Their probiotic contains a patented strain called Bacillus Indicus HU36, which produces antioxidants in the digestive system where they can be easily absorbed by the body. Their other product is a K2-7, and this is a nutrient you may have heard of. It's known as Activator X, a super nutrient that Weston A. Price, a dentist, known primarily for his theories on the relationship between nutrition, good health, bone development, and oral health, found he found that this is prevalent in foods in the healthiest communities in the world. The K2 from Just Thrive is the only pharmaceutical-grade, all-natural supplement with published safety studies. Like the probiotic, it is also gluten, dairy, soy, nut, and GMO-free, and best are both taken with food, so I keep both on my kitchen table. Here's a tip too. My dad has trouble remembering to take supplements. So he actually taped these to his pepper shaker because he uses that at practically every meal. And now they're on his daily supplement list as well. You can check out all their products and learn more by going to thriveprobiotic.com forward slash wellnessmama and using the code wellnessmama15 to save 15%. So again, that's Thrive Probiotic, T-H-R-I-V-E, P R O B I O T I C dot com forward slash wellness mama and the code wellness mama 15 to save 15%. I love also that you talked about variation, that you don't do the exact same thing every day. You, a couple days a week, mix it up with a little bit longer, which is great. I think it's good not to let our bodies get too adapted to doing complete regimented thing every single day. And you mentioned that I do longer fasting and I do, I'm actually just finishing up a 10 day fast, but I'll make sure I say on the record, I'm not encouraging anyone else to do that. I, I largely do it as much for the mental and emotional side as I do for the physical side and I'm under the care of two doctors my thyroid doctor and another doctor and I've worked with the geneticist to know that I have a kind of unusual combination of genes that makes fasting pretty easy for me so it's not something I recommend for everyone but having had nodules on my thyroid before with Hashimoto's it's something I look at like an insurance plan um, because of the autophagy that you mentioned that happens even overnight for us Um, just it extends that window drastically so I think that's such a good primer on fasting, so cool, and I love that you incorporate that in your life in a way that seems very easy and doable, and probably is just part of your routine now.
0: Absolutely, I think that you know the data for cancer, um, the data for metabolic diseases like diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease, and brain disease, Alzheimer's and dementia is just so positive that it is enough for me to feel that fasting should be a part of many people's. I'm not saying it's the panacea. I'm not saying that every single person should be doing it. But I think that most people can benefit from some kind of Fasting, or as I'm explaining, this kind of time-restricted eating in a circadian pattern can be great because it down-regulates your IGF-1, your mTOR pathway. These are all things that lead to um, cancer and other diseases. And we know um, through animal studies and also now through some human um, trials that uh, intermittent fasting can be a very effective way of down-regulating those cancer pathways.
1: Yeah, it's so cool what our bodies are capable of. Another topic I want to touch on, lastly, I'll respect your time and not keep you forever, although I would talk to you all day, is plastic use. This is a soapbox I've been on recently. I did a lot of research on this over the last few months and just realizing how much plastic waste we have. I am mean, certainly there's a ton of health concerns, which I know that you can speak to. But even just to touch on the environmental side for a minute, like we literally have floating islands of plastic trash in the ocean bigger than the state of Texas, and they're killing millions of animals per year. And they expect by 2050, we're going to have more plastic than fish in the ocean. And we know from the health side, these compounds, especially when they start breaking down in our water can have a really big impact. So I know as a mom and a doctor, this is something that you also speak about, but can you take us through some of the reasons why we all need to be avoiding plastic more and how to do that practically?
0: I think you're absolutely right. I If we don't To pay attention to our environment and our earth and the way we live our lives, I think we're putting ourselves in a situation where there's going to be irreversible damage to our earth and to our bodies. I really keenly became aware of this going to the developing country of India during um, this holiday break. And I honestly felt that I saw it so clearly where, you know, the uh, oceanside was polluted with plastic. You can see plastic coming up to the shore and it's insane how our water supply is so ridden with plastic and Our food supply as well so I highly recommend that besides the fact that you know the BPA for example uh, people think oh BPA free is going to be safe but BPA free plastics often have BPB and other BPs um, that are actually more toxic to our bodies than BPA so I recommend that we reduce the amount of plastic in our lives drastically. And for example, um, you know, some easy swaps that I have done in the last year is. My children have these pouches uh, that they take with zippers. Um, and they're little pouches that you can put you know, grapes or you can put uh, any kind of snacks in them and they're reusable and washable. And they're a really great alternative um, to plastic Ziploc bags, which get warmed um, through the day and really leach out into the children's food. I also, uh, you know, obviously metal water bottles and glass uh, use is, a, uh, is also a huge Thing that people often uh, are able to do. And I think in our children especially, I try to be careful about giving them their lunch foods in things that are covered in plastic because often they're getting um, heated or they're getting heat from just being out for a couple of hours. And we know that heat speeds up the leaching of these toxic compounds into our food. Um, the other thing that we can be doing to improve our, uh, you know, plastic uses, you know, when you have less waste, there's going to be less landfills. And I think, Katie, you've talked about doing things with less waste. And I think that's something that is just becoming a bigger issue now. It's not just about our own bodies, it's about these animals in the ocean, it's about our earth, it's about our cities and countries. We need to make this earth a sustainable, healthy place for our children and our children's children.
1: Exactly. And I can't believe our time has flown by already. There's a couple final questions I love to ask. The first being, do you have a book or any like multiple books that have really had an influence on your life and why?
0: Yes, I have two that I wanted to mention. One is The Hormone Cure by Sarah Gottfried, um, MD. She's a physician who inspired me when I was going through my own hormonal imbalance. So just like many women that I work with now, I had my own hormonal issues when I had my second child, and I was super busy starting a new practice, and I could not get any answers from any of my friends, any of my colleagues who were physicians. And I started doing my own reading on PubMed, like you do, Katie. And then I read The Hormone Cure, which it just hit home for me and really inspired me to do much more of my own homework, research, and hypotheses. So I really thank her and thank that book. The other book that I really, really loved, and I read kind of at this similar time, um, was The Four Hour Work Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. And I think. I think that the thing that I loved about that book was that it motivated me to think outside the box in my career and about in in my life and I realized like hey I can create a life and a career that I love and that can help many many people and I don't have to be in a box created by someone else
1: yeah I'm a big fan of Ferris's work as well um, and then lastly if there's a piece of advice that you could spread far and wide what would it be and why
0: I guess it goes along with the theme that we talked about today: is really respect nature and the earth, and incorporate it into your everyday life. I think that it we've gotten so far from you know with our technology, and um, that we don't really need to interact with. Our earth and nature in a regular way anymore. But you know, all the things we talked about today getting sunlight, intermittent fasting based on the sun and the moon, getting um, dirty in the garden, um, walking barefoot those are daily practices that are easy and can really improve your health and the health of our earth.
1: I love it, and I totally agree. And I think we'll have to eventually maybe do a round two because you're such a wealth of knowledge and you're so fun to talk to. Thank you so much for your time today.
0: This has been a blast. Katie, thank you so much. This has been so fun. I would love to. And thank you
1: to all of you for sharing your most valuable gift, your time with us. We don't take that lightly. We're very grateful for you. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me?